In the University of Kentucky's illustrious basketball history, Kyle Macy inherits a prominent place and spawned a generation of boys named Kyle in the Commonwealth. Indiana's Mr. Basketball in 1975 while playing for his father Bob at Peru High, the 6'3 point guard was a three-year starter for the Wildcats after spending his freshman season at Purdue. Macy helped the Wildcats capture the 1978 national title, breaking a 20-year drought that likely felt like a century-long drought to Big Blue Nation. When Macy's collegiate career closed in 1980, he had a resume to rival any Wildcat, three All-American nods, an SEC Player of the Year award, and two SEC titles in addition to the 1978 National Championship. He left UK as the program's all-time leader in assists and 12th on the Cats' all-time scoring list. A first-round draft pick of the Phoenix Suns in 1979, Macy played seven seasons in the NBA. He was inducted into the University of Kentucky Athletics Hall of Fame in 2005, and the Wildcats retired his number four jersey in 1997. We welcome Kyle Macy onto the 99 podcast. So, you Kyle, doing, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Yeah, glad, good to be with you. Thanks for asking. Um, well, we are thrilled. So, I want to, you know, with 99 being a brand that celebrates basketball history and a brand that embraces the game. Uh, we always like to know how people got involved with basketball. So let's start there. What's your basketball origin story, Kyle? Well, I, I really didn't have any choice. Uh, my father was a basketball coach. And <laughs> from the time I can remember, um, we had a goal, you know, in the basement where he would hold me up by the diapers or whatever and let me drop a ball in the basket. And I was just always around the game. He coached a small college when I was growing up. And, um, you know, those are the players that I'd go to practice. I was a mascot when I was young from maybe ages five, three to five, four, or maybe six, had my own uniform, thought I was really hot stuff, you know, to match the team uniforms. And I'd lead them out in layups, and then at halftime I'd stay out and shoot around and dribble and do some things. And um, But those were the guys that I looked up to. It wasn't NBA players or even college players back then. Uh, I, I'd try to imitate players that he had on his team, and some of the guys were nice enough to stick around after practice to play a game of horse with me or, you know, whatever. And uh, so I, I was just always around the game. But my father was also a, uh, a gym teacher in high school later on, earlier before he actually started high school, went to college and came back to high school. And um, he got us involved in a lot of different sports. But, you know, basketball was one that I kind of just fell in love with probably the most. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more? You know, I always envy you you guys who have the coaches' sons who always have the keys to the gym, so to speak. <laughs> um, so can you talk about your father's influence? Um, he was obviously your high school coach at Prue High. What, how did he shape and mold your game? You know, he wasn't a coach that uh, was real demanding. You got to get to the gym today. You got to, you know, whatever. It was always, um, if he felt like I maybe needed to work a little bit on something, he'd kind of suggest it. Or anytime I wanted to go and do something, he, he, I don't think he ever said no. Like, no, I'm too tired. I can't go. And, you know, he, he's maybe been out uh, recruiting or had practice, went out on a recruiting trip or to watch a game, scouting, whatever, and came back. And it may be, you know, pretty late at night. And uh, if it was weekend, I didn't have school. And I'd, I'd want to go to the gym or, you know, go shoot in the back in the driveway, whatever. And he, he always would take time to do that. And I think that just uh, mean, meant so much to me and, and um, because of that, we had a, just a great relationship, um, father, son, coach, player, but all those things. And, you know, you talk about maybe leaving it on the court, 
but it never really happened. I mean, we, we had discussions and sometimes even at the dinner table, my mother was maybe more like a referee between the two of us talking about things that he thought was pretty sure of and things that I thought I was pretty sure of. So, but it, it was just great. So, um, and he was a good player himself. I mean, his team was 27 and 0 in high school before they lost in the semi state up in East Chicago. And, um, you know, had, had over 500 and some coaching victories. So just a, a real wealth of knowledge. That's great. It, you know, you talk about um, you, maybe your father kind of teaching you some aspects of the game and maybe some dinnertime disagreements. Um, you were known for your free throw shooting and you shot 89% for your career. And I think you have a rather distinctive routine at the line. So can you describe that to us and kind of the origins of that routine? Well, it started, uh, I can remember in grade school, <clears throat> excuse me, um, our fifth and sixth grade team, the coach at the end of practice every day would have everybody shoot 10 free throws and see who could make the most. And for some reason, I just kind of got involved in that and really interested and invested in it. And I really worked hard to want to be the best free throw shooter every day at the end of practice. And uh, obviously my dad, you know, taught me all the fundamentals of the game. And, and one thing he said was, you know, you need to develop a routine that works for you so that you can be comfortable at the free throw line and kind of, it's, it, you know, it's almost like you put yourself in a trance when you get up there because you know exactly what's going to happen. You can block out whether the crowd's cheering or the cheerleaders are doing flips or when I played in Italy, if people were throwing coins at you while you're standing there at the line, all that stuff. So um, you just you know, develop your own routine and, and what you know works. I tell young kids what works for me may not work for you. You kind of have to do your own practice, kind of develop your own routine and, and what works and continue to practice that. So. Um, I'd get to the line, I'd find the nail hole, uh, the middle of the free throw line, which most people know about nowadays. And then um, I would reach down and grab my socks before the official gave me the ball. And one thing that kind of did was help uh, bring my focus in and, again, blocking out what was going on all around me. And so I, I kind of focused then on what I was there for, and that was put the ball in the basket. So I'd grab my socks. Yeah, it helped wipe my hands off a little bit too because at the, that time you wore two pairs of socks, so the outer pair usually was – more dry anyway. Um, and then I take the ball from the official. Um, one nuance I'd kind of, I, I like to spin the ball to where I could read the label. And so if they handed it to me upside down, then I would turn it, whatever. But then I would dribble it three times and come to my set position where I could kind of check, go through my checkpoints with my elbow in line and, and my wrinkle, my wrist and all those things. And then take a deep breath, exhale, you know, focus in on my target and shoot the ball. And so, you know, the more you do that and the more you make, the more confidence you get. And so it gets to where you kind of want to be the player late in the game that gets fouled so you can make those big free throws. Yeah. Boost up your stat line too, though, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as Indiana's Mr. Basketball, you surely had opportunities to attend any number of colleges um, in Indiana and elsewhere. So what schools were you considering and how did you come to pick Purdue off the bat? Well, uh, yeah, my, my final schools, uh, I visited UCLA, although I, I kind of knew I wasn't going to go that far away from home. I'm a you know, small-town Indiana kid, uh, even though I grew up in Fort Wayne. But um, I, I did A good recruiting visit. trip for you, though. Smart. Yeah, and I wanted to visit there because, you know, the tradition and everything of the, of the school. Um, I went to visit Cincinnati, which at the time was one of the top five uh, ranked teams in the country. And the Indiana Mr. Basketball from the year before there, Steve Collier, actually was, had gone there. Um, and then Purdue and Kentucky. And it really came down to Purdue and Kentucky. 
And I never told Kentucky no. I was just real late in deciding. It was um, almost Mother's Day, you know, early part of May. And nowadays, you know, kids commit in the seventh, eighth grade. But uh, this was I, – I didn't really talk to coaches until after I was done playing my senior year. I didn't want to be distracted by all that. And so, fortunately, again, having a father as a coach, he could talk to all the coaches when they called the house and uh, kind of give me, a, you know, what, what they were saying or whatever. But I, I really didn't really focus on that until after I was done playing. So I was late. And basically it came down to uh, Coach Hall uh, called and said, you know, we want to sign one more guard. We would like to sign you. But if you're not ready to sign, you know, we don't want to be left out in the cold. So we're going to sign uh, Truman Clater, as it turned out, who I ended up starting with for two years. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, wasn't sure still at that point. So they, they signed Truman. And, I, you know, I probably felt some pressure to stay close to home. Purdue is about an hour from Peru uh, where I was in high school. Uh, and being Mr. Basketball to stay in state. But, you know, I, my sister graduated from Indiana University, and I'd go down there some of the weekends and watch games when I was younger and stay with her. But um, they really didn't recruit me. They had uh, Buckner, Wilkerson, Wisman, and Cruz, and they signed Bob Bender the first day. And and so I, I wanted to play it before I was a junior. <laughs> so I, I didn't really give them a lot of consideration, although Coach Knight really didn't recruit me that hard. So. I want to talk about UCLA really quick because John Wooden is a Indiana boy, just like you. Right. What were your impressions of Wooden? Well, um, his last year was 75. That was my senior year at high school. So when I went out, he, he wasn't there. Um, but obviously I always had high uh, respect for Coach Wooden and all the things he was able to accomplish. And my father being a coach from Indiana as well, I think – I remember he would write him a letter like once a year at the end of the basketball season and uh, just talk about things. And Coach Wooden without, you know, always would answer. It may not have been right away, but my dad would always get a letter back from him. And so that that was always kind of special for my father, I'm sure. And a Purdue guy himself, John Wooden. So, yeah. you know, you have a solid freshman campaign for the Boilermakers. Purdue finishes third in the Big Ten. As a freshman, you average nearly 14 points a game. And, and it's a young team, too, as the – the four leading scorers are all underclassmen. You got Walter Jordan on the team. Uh, things seem bright there in Lafayette, Lafayette, uh, West Lafayette. So, what prompted the transfer? Well, um, you know, I, when I was being recruited, I, I I didn't want them to say, you know, we promise you're going to start, but I did want to have an opportunity to play because, like I said, I, I didn't even hardly look at Indiana because I wanted to play before I was a junior, and I was told that that's what would happen. And as I got there, I played well in the, the black and gold scrimmages, I guess they call them there. And um, so the first four or five games came around, I really barely got in the game. And so I was kind of disappointed there. But fortunately for me, and unfortunately for him, but Bruce Parkinson broke his wrist, who was a senior, had played that summer before in the Pan American Games. And, um, you know, he'd been around this, so he was going to redshirt. And um, so I played and had a real good freshman year, I felt like, you know, for freshmen. I had 20-some, I think, my first uh, game I played in. I started against West Virginia. Bob Huggins was playing. Um, had <laughs> you gave it to Huggy Bear. Good for you. Yeah. Had uh, 38, my first Big Ten game up in Minnesota at the old barn up there. Um, but, you know, there was something missing from that team. It's just the coaches, for some reason, just didn't seem like they would take charge. And we didn't have much discipline on that team. So that, along with the fact that Bruce was going to come back and he redshirted and was coming back, and, uh, you know, once you get a taste of playing and have some success, you, you don't want to 
backtrack and go back and sit on the bench. And uh, so, you know, I, I made the decision that I, if you're going to leave at that time before the, the uh, transfer portal, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you wanted to go as early in your career as you could because you had to sit out a year. It was kind of funny because Jerry Seasting, who was another freshman on that team, uh, we ran into each other a few years later, and we, we kind of had a laugh. He said, you know, you just beat me to the punch because if you hadn't left, I was leaving. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I, I was real fortunate the way it turned out because at that time when you transferred, most of the time it's because you couldn't play at that level and you kind of went down a level. But, um, you know, I sat out a year and was able to step right into a starting position at Kentucky and right away, we, you know, first year we won the national championship. So I couldn't have written a script any better. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when you decide to transfer is you mentioned Kentucky was your final school there with Purdue when you were coming out of high school. So was Kentucky the clear choice or did you kind of start to investigate some other options as well? You know, the um, it, it really was a choice of two things. One, did I want to go to a junior college, transfer you know, to a junior college, but then the next year have to transfer again? Or did I want to go and sit out? And again, you know, I'd played basketball ever since I could remember, since I could walk. And so to have to sit out a year, I knew it was going to be really tough. So it was, it was kind of a tough decision. But because I had never really told Kentucky no, I immediately called Coach Hall and set up a meeting, came down to Lexington and um, talked with him and, and uh, all that, you know, worked out. So. so I want to talk about Coach Hall. He unfortunately, passed earlier this year on January 15th. Can you share a story that kind of characterizes the type of coach he was or the type of man he was? Um, he was a uh, very disciplined coach, which is something I was looking for. So that worked out great. Uh, to kind of give you an idea, I mean, that, that meeting that I, I just referred to, um, it was about an hour-long meeting, and it was at, at his house. And uh, the first 55 minutes, you know, had gone the year before where he was selling me on Kentucky to this meeting that I was basically selling him on allowing me to come down here and play at Kentucky. And for the first 55 of those 60 minutes, never cracked a smile, never gave any indication that he was even interested in me coming down here to play. And, and finally, you know, the last few minutes, he says, well, yeah, I, th I think we can give it a try. So, you know, it worked out. But he, he was very tight to the vest. And uh, until you graduate and, and you're done playing for him, is the first time you really learn he can smile and has a real good sense of humor. So. <laughs> That's a funny story. So he was not impressed that you dropped 38 as a freshman for Purdue. Well, he sure didn't show it if he was. <laughs> you know, you mentioned you, you have to – that had to kill you to sit out a year, you know, as a transfer student. And, you know, there are stories out there of that, you know, gap year, so to speak, really um, propelling players to great heights. It's a year of development, maturity, things of that nature. For others, though, it's a real – distraction it seems and they get pulled away from the game and they realize they have other interests and for you what was that one year like sitting out it, it was really tough but in hindsight i think it was by far the best thing that could have happened to me i think um when i went to purdue as a freshman i probably weighed 155 soaking wet maybe 160 never been in a weight room um so that year i sat out one thing that coach hall was very big on was weightlifting. And so just having that extra year of maturity, a year of being in the weight room, I could practice with the team every day at home. So it gave me that year of understanding what they were trying to do defensively, offensively, got to know my teammates or who would be my teammates the following year, what they like to do, where they like to catch the ball and those type of things. So it made the transition once I became eligible 
a lot easier. It wasn't like I was just really thrown into the fire. And, uh, it, it, you know, it gave me some confidence having a year to practice and have some success against the guys down there as well. It also kind of gave me some motivation to have to have to sit out a year uh, that when I finally did become eligible, I was really ready to play and looking forward to it. And, you know, that year you sit out, Kentucky goes 26-4. and four. The, the Wildcats are powerhouse all year, but they lose in the Elite Eight to North Carolina. So that's the year you sit out. But then you're going to start playing again. It's the 1977-78 season. Um, you guys start the season ranked number two to North Carolina in the preseason. What do you recall about the internal expectations for that team? Well, um, from day one of the preseason conditioning, it was a very focused team. Um, we had four seniors that were really the, the leaders uh, because they'd been through all the battles. As freshmen, they played in that 75 championship game, John Wooden's last game. As sophomores, they won the NIT. As juniors, the game you talked about, they lost to North Carolina in the East Regional Final. So they'd done just about everything except win the championship. And so from day one, um, every day at the end of practice, whether it was our running or weightlifting or on the court practice, we'd huddle up and always break with number one. That was the goal at the end of the year to finish the season as national champions. So, you know, you put a little extra pressure on yourself doing that, but at the same time, when it all plays out and you're able to accomplish that, it makes that goal, achieving that goal that much more satisfying and rewarding. So it was a, a very focused group, you know, a lot of, there's talk at the Final Four about how we, we weren't having any, any fun, taking all the fun out of the game and that. But it wasn't that. It was just the fact that we had one goal in mind. We were just happy to play in San, St. Louis in the Final Four. We, we wanted to win both games there. And, and then once we did, I mean, 40-plus years now, we're still having fun. We have reunions off and on, get to see everybody. So it's great. You mentioned you'd huddle up after practice, and it was all hands in the middle, yeah. and you'd say number one. Uh, was that a Coach Hall thing, or was that driven by a player on the team? Do you recall no. how that kind of came to be? No, or? that was just the four seniors got it started at our, our running program. Um, we'd always huddle up before the last 220 we had to run. <laughs> Most of you could barely stand up, but <laughs> you know, just it, it buy a few extra seconds to get everybody together. And, and uh, yeah, so but the seniors want to kind of implemented that. Let me ask you this: Who was the the engine? We're going to talk a lot about this season. Who was the engine? or the, the heartbeat of that team? Well, um, that's, you know, that's the thing about that team. If you go back and look through the whole year or specifically look at our NCAA tournament, every game we played, it seemed like a different player had a big game. And that kind of showed the versatility of that team. Our first game, we were down at halftime big Florida State and Coach Hall, you know, may have put his job on the line. He, he didn't start three of the starters. So our bench really gave us a minute. So for that game, that's probably who you would say. I mean, some other players had some big points and stuff, but the bench really was the, the key to that victory. Uh, the next game, the two guys from Ohio, Truman Clater and Mike Phillips, when we, we beat Miami of Ohio, uh, they both had big games. Uh, then we played Michigan State, and I was fortunate to have make some free throws down the stretch. Uh, the semifinal game, uh, Rick Roby had, had a good game, I think, and um, – Mike may have had a good game, but again, different players. And then Jack, obviously, in the final game goes for 41. So it wasn't like we were just relying on one player. We could play fast. We could play slow. We could play full court. We could play half court. And that, I think, kind of exemplifies that team, how it was so solid. 
you know, you you talk about um, the NCAA tournament. We're going to dig a little bit more into some of these games. But, you know, I mentioned how you guys start that season uh, ranked number two to North Carolina, and you guys don't disappoint. You're the number one team in the country pretty quickly. You win your first 14 games. You guys close the season 25-2 and two with an SEC championship. As you guys are heading into the NCAA tournament, how would you characterize the energy and vibe of, the, of that team? You know, um, we, we had a good winning streak to start the season, and then we uh, tripped up down in Alabama. I, we blame Coach Hall for that. We we had a two-and-a-half-hour practice the night before in the old tartan floors down in a hot gym in Alabama, and just a step-and-a-half, two steps maybe slow. The next day, lost by 16. And, uh, and then we lost a, a close game down at LSU. They had a lot of players foul out. We had a lot of players foul out. And it went overtime still. But I think those two games kind of refocused us so that we felt like we were ready. But, you know, a lot of times that first game in the NCAA tournament is the hardest. And so that first half against Florida State, we really struggled. They, they had a, a talented team. And um, the shock treatment by Coach Hall not starting those three other starters. Fortunately, I was one that did get to start. Um, you know, he didn't keep them out that long, but long enough that they kind of understood, you know, you're going to have to play a little harder and do a little bit better while we're going at home. So that is such awesome. an aggressive lesson to teach at that point in the season. You know, first round of the NCAA tournament, winner go home. You guys are down 39 32 at the half. You're a coach's kid, you know, like you, you're, you've been around the, the coach discussion. What did you think? especially as you reflect on it now, especially what did you think when coach hall came out and said, three guys, you're, you're on the bench. Three of our stars are on the bench. Yeah. You know, I, I remember guys kind of looking around to each other and looking like, has he lost his mind? <laughs> but uh, you know, and, and also too, like I said, I was just kind of fortunate because it was pretty blistering there in the locker room that I was one that did get to start the second half. So, um, but you know, two of those guys were seniors and a junior in Truman. So, um, you know, they, they could handle it, I think, and Coach Hall probably knew that as well. And so, like I said, he didn't leave him out the whole half. It was, you know, a short period. But the guys that came in, you know, held their own. We actually cut in the lead a little bit. And uh, then it, it got that shock treatment where they came out uh, from uh, the substitution and played a lot harder and things started rolling. We got going. So. Yeah, and you, you win that game. You mentioned in the second round, you guys match up against the Miami of Ohio team. That team is Randy Ayers, probably the most notable guy on that team. Um, you guys beat them pretty handily, 91-69. That sets up an Elite Eight matchup against Michigan State, who has a, a freshman by the name of Magic Johnson. So we're in the pre-YouTube, pre-ESPN era then. Heck, college basketball is rarely even on national television then. So what did you know of Magic at that time? and what were your impressions of him then when you got on the court? Um, yeah, we hadn't seen a lot of him, but we we obviously had heard his name a lot. You know, you follow other conferences, Big Ten, whatever. And even in high school, I remember, you know, being from northern Indiana. It's not that far from Michigan. <laughs> so uh, I'd heard his name a whole lot. And um, one thing we tried to do, we, we put Jack on him. Uh, in man-to-man defense and because of Jack's size at 6'6", and always had Jack kind of hold a hand up in hopes that he maybe take away some of his vision. And, um, I mean, they're obviously – their matchup zone was very good. They were known for it. Greg Kelser was on the team, a great player. And um, that first half, again, we, we struggled a little bit to kind of figure out the zone. Yeah. 
And uh, one thing to Magic's credit, you know, I was fortunate enough to play against him a whole lot later on in the pros and stuff when he was at LA and I was in Phoenix. Um, he wasn't a great outside shooter, but to his credit, by the time, you know, a few years into the NBA, he was. I mean, he he could make last-second shots from long distance and uh, became one of the top free-throw shooters in the, in the NBA. And really shooting at the time, what it was more at that time, you know, driving the basket or dishing. And he was a great passer, obviously. But to his credit, even though he was an outstanding player, he never got satisfied and became complacent. He continued to work on his game right up until he retired. Yeah. And you mentioned that that Michigan State game. You guys jump out to a, a 27-22 lead at the half. Or I should say Michigan State jumps out to that 27-22 lead at the half. And you guys really struggle with that matchup zone. You guys figure it out. You hang on for a 52-49 win. Now, you're Kentucky's leading scorer with 18 points. You mentioned down the stretch. You go 10 of 11 from the line. All that routine, all that practice, that works there. Um, Magic has as many points as turnovers with six. Um, so you, Kentucky's back in the Final Four. Um, what do you recall about the aftermath of that Michigan State game or preparing for the Final Four in St. Louis? What memory kind of sticks out there during that, that time of the season? Well, I think after that game, um, and it was kind of funny because coming out of halftime, we, we'd talked about some adjustments at halftime, but then coming out, Leonard Hamilton, who's now the, co- the current coach at Florida State, uh, and Coach Hall grabbed Rick Roby and I and pulled us over to the sideline. It was almost like, you know, Sandlot where you draw up a play on the sideline in the dirt. wasn't in the dirt, but they pulled us over and said, you know, let's try doing this where um, I would throw the ball to one side and swing it back and forth. And Rick would come up and set a pick, which against a matchup zone, you know, you don't think you pick a zone much, used to not, but you do, you can. And so that would allow me to get into the gap and we'd slide Givens on the baseline and Mike Phillips down low. So I was going to be open or Jack was going to be open. And there's no way they, with that pick, giving me that gap, there's no way they could really uh, stop somebody. And, you know, fortunately for me, I either got a jump shot or they did foul me. And I missed my first free throw, which was kind of a good sign for me normally for my practice. Uh, you get that one out of the way, you feel like you're not going to miss anymore the rest of the night. So, um, yeah, but that, that was a real good halftime adjustment. That Leonard Hamilton was responsible for that. So to win that game, then the excitement, obviously, knowing that the four seniors who as freshmen had been at the Final Four were going back. But the ride home, that was in Dayton, Ohio. Um, all along the interstate on the, the overpasses and stuff, people were Kentucky fans hanging signs and standing by the roadside waving. And it was, it was pretty crazy on the bus ride home. Yeah, you get to see big, big Blue Nation in full force, correct? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Leonard Hamilton. That's early on in his career. And, and you know, that, that's a guy who ends up um, really taking Miami, bringing Miami basketball to national prominence, has had a great run at Florida State. What did you see in a young Leonard Hamilton when he was a coach back in the 1970s there? Um, he really stressed on the defensive end. Well, he was at Kentucky anyway. And Coach Hall kind of turned that over to him a lot on the man-to-man. And, um, you know, he, he was a lot younger, obviously, at that time. And, and we'd get out there and demonstrate firsthand some of those guys and, uh, on the wing spot maybe playing one-on-one and, and uh, mm-hmm. some of the guys would laugh from him. Coach Hall wasn't doing that, correct? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he took a lot of pride in his defense. And, you know, I think he still stresses that at Florida State. Well, that and six, nine wing players at Florida State yeah. these days. Um, in St. Louis, uh, Kentucky meets Arkansas. That's Coach Eddie Sutton's team. They're a top five 
uh, team nearly all season. That team has two legit NBA pros and Ron Brewer and Sidney Moncrief. What kind of game plan did Coach Hall or maybe even Coach Hamilton there, uh, what did the staff draw up for that game? Well, you know, that Arkansas team, um, they had what they called the triplets, which was Brewer, Moncrief, and Delph, who was another six, seven wing player could shoot lights out. And and the, the two teams that beat us that year, uh, Alabama down there and LSU at their place, um, had gone to smaller lineups and, and Alabama went to three guards. And so this, you know, we were a little concerned with this Arkansas team because those all three could score outstanding players. We felt like we had an uh, advantage maybe in the post and we tried to exploit that, but it was a back and forth game. It, it was our closest game by far, maybe our toughest game. Yeah. Um, and it came down basically to right at the end of the uh, game, we got a, a play over the top of their press that gave us a four point margin. And is is that Rick, Rick, Rick? Yeah, it was a press offensive play. That's right. And uh, what happened was Jack would come over like he was going to pick for the other guard. We'd bring the forwards and the big men up the sideline. And Jack would, instead of picking, he'd slip it and run over the top. And so I was able to throw a, a lob pass down the court and just let him catch it on the run and lay it in. And with no three-point shot at that time, that four-point margin was huge because it was less than maybe 30 seconds at the time. Yeah, and you guys pull it out against the Razorbacks, 64-59. You just said it here, you and I and I read this before, you called that the toughest game of the tournament. Why so? Why was Arkansas the toughest game of the tournament? Yeah, I mean, they, they were solid. I mean, Eddie Sutton was a great defensive coach, and they were like to control the offense. And all three of those uh, players – Brewer, Moncrief, and Delph could just light it up. I, I, I think if I remember right, I got in some foul trouble, uh, caught, caught reaching in a few times, and uh, so didn't play as many minutes I normally had. But uh, we, we were fortunate to pull that one out. Yeah. So you guys are staring at a national title game against Duke, and you know there's a generation of fans, uh, college basketball fans, that only know Duke as being a blue blood. But back then, that was a good Duke program. You know, uh, certainly, but that's pre-Coach K Duke. Um, and again, not the Blue Blood program we know today. They have G- uh, Jim Spinarkle. They have Mike Jaminski. It's a solid squad, no doubt, but not one many had kind of pegged to, to be there in a championship game. So as you prepared for that game and practice, team meetings, in the locker room, warm-ups, things of like that, what was your level of confidence like, Kyle? Well, you know, it's funny. After that Arkansas game, uh, Coach Hall said, you know, let's just relax and go out to dinner and have a good meal and just kind of forget about the, the Final Four. we got a day off tomorrow, and we'll worry about that tomorrow. And it was Rick Roby that said, Coach, did you get a film of the, the uh, Notre Dame and Duke game? Because that's who they beat in their semifinal action. He said, yeah, we have one. He says, well, we'd like to order pizza in and take the film to the room and watch it as a team. So that kind of shows you how focused this team was that – yeah, we can go out to dinner later, Coach. We, we want to get ready for this game, and it'll ha- give us an extra you know, night to watch film and, and be prepared. So um, it, I don't know if it was so much confidence as it was, just we knew we were going to be prepared. That uh, Those freshmen, I think, in hindsight, they maybe looked back uh, when they played against the UCLA team out in San Diego. They went to the zoo when they were there. They went to the beach when they were there. They did some other things, and so they didn't want to make that mistake again and maybe miss out on an opportunity to win the national championship. So we were real focused on the task at hand. Uh, that was a real good Duke team with, like you said, Kenny Denard, Gene Banks was on the team. Yeah. 
Uh, Spinarco was their kind of leader of the team. Um, so, you know, the media tried to make up the story where, again, we weren't having any fun. This was basically a freshman, sophomore, and one junior, whatever team, to where they were they were just, you know, happy to be there and having fun, not really worrying about winning or losing, just having fun. So, you know, it is what it is. Me, he's going to make up some stories. But uh, and one of the reasons, I think, too, was because they had a press conference that next day before the Monday finals. So some of the guys, um, we were up late, obviously, watching film after the game. We had the second game of the semifinal. And so and that, that press conference was pretty early in the morning. And so I think a few of us were still half asleep when we were at the press conference. And, you know, they were there just goofing around, whatever. So whatever. <laughs> so you guys had played your two previous games in the 50s and 60s, but the game against Duke is it's pretty fast-paced. Um, you finished with nine points and eight assists. Rick Roby is 20 and 11 that game, um, but it's really best remembered as the Goose Givens game. I mean, Jack goes for 41 on the on the Blue Devils. Um, Kentucky breaks a 20-year national title drought with that 94-88 win over, over Duke. So the closing seconds, the immediate aftermath of game, What what's a piece of that title game experience you'll just never forget? Well, um, obviously, like I said earlier, when, when you accomplish a goal that you've set out from the very start and by maybe putting added pressure on that, that it was kind of um, the ultimate goal was to win it or really kind of felt like it might have been a, a bad season to, to be able to accomplish that, I think just adds to the excitement and, and the, uh, the pride you have in that accomplishment. Uh, right after the game, I remember, remember there was a long shot and shook hands with Jim Smirnarko out towards half court. And next thing you know, the crowd was on the floor. I never got to a, a, a net to be able to cut down a net on either end of the court because it was just slammed there. I remember looking up into the crowd, trying to find my family, you know, from all the things that I'd had to go through the transfer. And they, they were living in Indiana the entire time. And you know, I'm sure a lot of comments were directed towards them that really weren't deserved. So it was kind of a satisfying i think obviously to to accomplish that goal and to be able to share that with them let me ask, let me stick on that you grew up the son of a coach and you share a lot of basketball with your father when you're at the biggest stage in college basketball um you mentioned you looked up in the stands trying to find your family what did you, what did you experience with your father that day he was a nervous wreck. <laughs> I think he'd rather been coaching or playing uh, than than watching. He it was funny because my mother was she'd be active and wouldn't be would be without knowing it. You know, maybe throw an elbow to the person sitting next to us. Had to watch that. <laughs> but my dad was nervous type where he'd get up and walk the stadium and walk around. If we were playing well, he may sit in the same seat. But if things start going a little well, he'd move, get up and move around. So I definitely he would have liked to have played more or been coaching the game than being a fan. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a great experience. He had, like I said, a lot of success as a player and as a coach. And, uh, you know, to watch his son maybe accomplish that, I think he was real happy, obviously. Yeah. And so you've spoken about that Kentucky team being extremely focused. And I've seen you speak about it also as being the perfect example of a group that did whatever it took to win. Um, what else made that team so special and unique? Well, yeah, that's the first thing I would think, the willingness of everybody on the team to sacrifice for the good of the team. I mean, you talk about the championship game with Jack's 41. We had offenses and stuff we were trying to run or we were going to run. But when we saw that Jack got that hot hand, I mean, he banked one in from deep in the corner on the side of the glass. 
and it ricocheted in, which is kind of hard to do. We kind of knew he had the hot hand. And so we basically just threw everything out the window and, and basically the offense became fine Jack. So he would flash in the middle of that zone. And for whatever reason, Duke never made the adjustment of bringing Kaminsky up to try to guard him in the middle. And um, and if he did, he came out a little late. Jack was quick enough. If he shot it and missed it, he, he went and got the rebound and put it right back in. I think he had like 19 points in a row towards the end of the first half and start of the second half. Yeah. And um, even though the Easily final one of the most dominant performances in a title game, I mean, it is it is up there with anyone. Yeah. And had he not been taken out with about five minutes to play, uh, he would have broken Bill Walton's record, I'm sure. Um, but Coach Hall, because he was a, a reserve when he was a player at Kentucky, always kind of had a, a admiration for the guys that put that hard work in, but don't really get the notoriety. So he, he cleared the bench or the, cleared the, the starters about four minutes to go and Duke made a run because the game wasn't really that close and you know till the end and so we had to go back in as starters and uh, to close it out and it ended up the six-point game yeah so you guys you're a national championship Kyle you guys uh you have two more years at Kentucky though and an interesting piece of your story is that the Phoenix Suns draft you after your junior year I mean, different time, different era in terms of how the draft and players can be picked and everything like that. But you decided to return to Kentucky for your final season. Larry Bird, it's interesting to note, had the same thing the year prior with the Celtics when he was at Indiana State. So what went into your decision to say, I'm going to go back to Kentucky? Well, at that time, if your class graduated, you didn't have to declare yourself eligible for the draft. And so um, I really... All along, I knew I was going to go back for my senior year. I, I talked to Portland. Stu Inman uh, is really the only general manager I talked to ahead of time. And um, because I, everybody knew that I was going to go back in my senior year. And um, I was actually in Colorado Springs. Uh, we were going, we'd flown out there. I was with the Pan American team. Bob Knight coached the team in 1979. We'd flown out. We'd been practicing at IU for a month. We flew out to Colorado Springs. They give you all the gear and everything. And then you could, the games were in Puerto Rico. So we were getting ready to go to Puerto Rico. And um, the phone rang in the hall. We were at the dorm there, uh, the Air Force. And uh, somebody yelled, hey, phone for you. So I came down, and it was a reporter from here in Lexington. And he said, so how do you feel about being drafted number 22 or 21, whatever it was, first round by the Phoenix Suns? And uh, unlike today, where they fly you to New York and have the big to do, I didn't know what he's talking about. He, I said, "Oh, oh, okay." <laughs> um, but Jerry Colangelo, I think he obviously knew. I had a real good uh, SEC tournament my junior year, right before that summer, and Jerry was there for most of that tournament. And I think that maybe sold him on the fact that he thought I could play uh, the following year for Phoenix. So it it, uh, it it was nice for me in that it, it kind of took some of the pressure off as far as worrying about where I was going to get drafted. But at the same time, it could have caused a little situation in the fact that Phoenix had my, my draft rights for a year, but that was also going to be an Olympic year. Had I played in the Olympics – I would have had to go back into the draft and not know, you know, at that time, maybe New Jersey was the worst team. And, uh, you know, you didn't want to get picked by them. (laughs) 
So, so I was going to have to make a decision. Do I go ahead and sign my contract or do I, cause I wanted to play the Olympic team after playing the Pan American games, obviously, but uh, Jimmy Carter boycotted those Olympics. So I didn't yeah. have to make that decision. We did pick an Olympic team, but I think if, you know, your hindsight, again, if you look back, that Olympic team would have been a whole lot different um, if we knew we were going to send the team to play in the Olympics. And I would have been one that we would have definitely tried out and yeah. kind of felt like you have a foot in the door after you're on the Pan Am team the year before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that seemed to be the right decision for you, though, you know, because you close your career with an SEC championship you, and, and you earn SEC Player of the Year honors. You've spent a good chunk of your post-playing career in Lexington too. So for those of us who only know Kentucky basketball from a distance, what do you think makes Big Blue Nation so unique or how do you describe it to outsiders? It's real hard to describe the the Big Blue Nation, but I think that obviously is the key of the Kentucky fans and the loyal support that they they, uh, give and follow their team with. And it's not just here in the state. I mean, again, when I was playing professionally, I could go from Seattle to wherever in the East Coast, and there would always be somebody before a game or after a game yell or come up and say, hey, whether it's calling out a game or go Big Blue or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so they, they just – they're very loyal. They follow their team. They try to study and know everything they can about their team, although it's been a little more difficult these last few years when players only stay for six, eight months. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a family member. And, you know, Kentucky – has a few big cities, but not that many. And for the longest time, you know, the entertainment was listening to the Wildcats play on the radio, whether it was Claude Sullivan or Kaywood Ledford giving the call. And then they started broadcasting the games at 1130 at night, the delayed broadcast, and people would stay up all night watching those games. And, um, you know, it's, it's just they're, they're loyal to their team and they love their team and that's their entertainment. Yeah. And so, you know, Kyle, before we get out of here, there's just some smattering of questions I, I want to ask you about, just different elements of your, your basketball career. And so I hope we might close out the show that way. So I want you to – you're a guy who played uh, at, in college for the Big Ten, uh, for the SEC. You played professionally, uh, both from the NBA but also overseas. So I want you, first of all, to take Rupp Arena off the table. What was the coolest arena you ever played in? Um, well, I, I'm kind of a history buff. And so the old Boston garden was pretty, it was a terrible gym, but it was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a parquet floor where you had four screws in the corners of the parquet pieces of wood. And, and many times three of the four screws would be gone. They, they weren't there. So there's all kind of dead spots. And, and, you know, when you go to warm up, a lot of times you just spend the first 10 minutes dribbling around trying to figure out where those dead spots are. Because uh, obviously the Celtic players knew where they were and they tried to direct you to some of those spots. But um, just when the crowd's in there, all the banners hanging from the ceiling and everything of the old Celtics teams, um, that, 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 that was always a pretty cool place to play. Uh, Madison Square Garden, obviously, the history of it. I remember growing up watching the Knicks when, uh, Willis Reed came limping out of the locker room, you know, with Walt Frazier and those guys. So uh, to actually get to play there was fun. Um, you know, it's – it's um, and now I look around and most of the gyms that I played in, they're all been destroyed and they've built new ones. <laughs> so or there's still one or two. but That's <laughs> yeah, the way it goes sometimes. Yeah. You mentioned uh, playing on the Pan Am team for Bob Knight. Um, 
Now, you mentioned he's a guy who uh, did not pay you much attention, even though you were Indiana's Mr. Basketball. So when you're playing for him on that team, are you glad you didn't play for him at Indiana and that that opportunity wasn't available to you? Or did he even admit, hey, Kyle, maybe I should have paid you a little bit more attention when you were back there at Peru High High School? You know, it it was real nice of him. He actually did, uh, before one of the practices came up and said, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would have recruited you harder, which he didn't have to say, but I thought that was real nice of him. And I I appreciate him saying that. And my experience from the Pan Am, the month there in Bloomington, playing and practicing with him and the team, and then going to the Puerto Rico games. And we went to Italy on a trip and played a few games just to kind of get ready for those games. Um, I, I enjoyed it. It was a great basketball experience, a lot of fun. And, um, you know, whether over a four-year period things change a little bit, I don't know. But from just those days that I played for him, I, I really enjoyed the experience. I, I'm a type player. I like having discipline where guys know exactly what's expected of them and you're expected to do it and not just kind of freelance and come and go as you please. That, that was really the main reason I left Purdue because we had a lot of talent, like you mentioned, on that team. But no one would – the coaches would never really take charge and, and have that discipline where – guys would kind of fall in line. Yeah. Well, the good thing about Bobby Knight saying that to you, you know, before practices, everything that people know about Knight is he doesn't say stuff to say stuff. Like yeah. you, you probably knew it wasn't BS coming from him. <laughs> so well, I like to think it wasn't, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to stick on coaching for a moment because you spent nine seasons as the head coach at Moorhead State too. So I'm always curious about this question uh, of guys who are great players. And then they're coaching, and they're coaching the game. So what was the biggest challenge for you as a coach? Well, the biggest challenge uh, being a coach at Moorhead was just to, to recruit good enough players to compete in our league um, because Moorhead's kind of isolated up in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. And um, we, we were fortunate. We, we got a few good kids out of Ohio and a few complimentary kids to go with them, but it took a long time to kind of build that program. And um, – but yeah, that that there was always the biggest challenge. Just you know, it, it's way isolated, and so they kind of to get kids to come and spend majority of time there because really for entertainment stuff, for the most part, they had to go someplace else. Whether it was up to Huntington, West Virginia, where Marshall is, or to Lexington, which is over an hour away, um, it, it, it made it tough. And I wasn't going to do things illegally to where you know, uh, just to get players because that, that, that never works out in the long run, I don't think. And I think, you know, they had some success. We were successful. We won the conference one year and second or third a few times after that or before that. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't going to break the rules and pay players and those type of things. And uh, later on it happened. One of the coaches they hired after me was, I think, on a five or ten year list where they couldn't coach because of that things they'd done and they had some real good teams and you know in the OVC if you get one or two real good players you can make a big jump and uh, we were fortunate we got two kids out of uh, Mansfield Ohio one the point guard that left as the all-time assist leader and uh, his cousin actually who um, left as the all-time leading scorer and um, was last player cut by the Sacramento Kings played a long time over in Europe and so, you know, when you get players like that, then you can you can have some success. It was just tough to get kids to come up there. Yeah. I want to talk about um, last two questions. I want to fast forward to your NBA career, seven-year NBA career, as I mentioned. You participated in the NBA's first ever three-point contest. What stands out about that experience? 
how stupid I was probably. Um, <laughs> you know, it was all new. Who Nobody was in really, it? Who do you remember was in it? Well, uh, Larry Bird obviously was in it and won. Craig Hodges was in it. Um, Leon Woods, who everybody thought was going to win it because all he did in warm-ups was shoot three-pointers even off the court, whatever. Um, Trent Tucker, I think, from the Knicks was in it. Uh, Sleepy Floyd from Golden State was in it. There was eight guys, I think. But yeah. it was all new, and I, nobody really knew. I, I was with the Chicago Bulls, and I really didn't know. I, I didn't really even practice, so I didn't know how long it took you know, how long a minute was to get around, how long it would take for the five racks you had. And so I shot a really good percentage. I think it was like 11 for 19, but I didn't get to the last rack because I, I was just kind of taking my time shooting. You know, had I been a little bit smarter, I would have probably, but, you know, not most teams or schools or whatever don't have five racks of basketball. So you kind of have to improvise. But at that time, it was more you're, you're just playing. That was just kind of a thing that they threw in like the dunk contest, something yeah. entertaining for the all-star game. But um, yeah, had I known and been a little smarter about it, I, I, I could have challenged Larry, I think. so. <laughs> <laughs> Two Indiana boys going at it. You mentioned you participate in the three-point contest when you're a member of the Bulls. So that's the 1985-86 season. Right. Michael is there, but he's injured most of the season, correct? Uh, that's yes. his foot injury yeah. season. So yeah. – but now Michael Jordan spent much of that season on the sideline. But give us your, you know, we're in, we're an MJ. I'm I'm an MJ territory here in Chicago, right? right. Uh, we had the last dance come out. There's a lot of Michael, a lot of fascination with MJ. What is your favorite Michael Jordan memory, or well, something like that illustrates kind of who he was? Yeah, I like to tell the story um, that you know we played the Chicago, the uh, Boston Celtics in the playoffs that year, first round and. Uh, went to a double overtime game. I think the first game yep. we ended up losing in double overtime, but Michael and I combined for 70 points. Um, he had 63 and I had seven. So that's one of my favorite memories. Um, Bill, yeah. Wennington, Bill Wennington has the same line where he says he and Michael combined for 57 in Madison square garden. Oh, okay. because Wennington had the winning dunk. <laughs> that was yeah. it. Well, um, but no, you're right. He was hurt. I think only played maybe 15 games that year and came back in time for the playoffs. But it was a, it was a tough year. Stan Albeck was a coach, and he was kind of left, uh, you know, not really sure if Mike was coming back or when. And then so what he did, he kind of just rotated, played group of the first and third quarters and the other group of the second and fourth quarters. And then, um, you know, it makes it tell we, we did make the playoffs, fortunately. But. Uh, played a good Celtics team, and I think they may have, I don't know if they won it that year, got beat by the Lakers in the finals, I'm not sure. I imagine it was pretty clear to you that Michael, at that time, like, okay, this guy's destined to be a star. Well, you know, you knew he was very competitive, but it was still, it was only his second year in the league, and um, he was still developing. And, and I think as he got older and more mature as a player, um because even if you go back and look at that Celtic game, he shot the ball every time he touched, <laughs> especially in the overtimes. And you're thinking, you know, if he had just hit a couple of the guys were wide open, we maybe could have won that game. And I think that's probably what happened once he started getting, you know, Pippen and those guys where he, he did trust them a little bit more and, and didn't feel like he had to do everything. So, but that just comes with playing. Yeah, cool. Well, hey, Kyle, we're going to let you close it out. We're going to close it out there and let you get on with your day. So thanks for joining us here on the 19.9 podcast to talk about your career in Big Blue Nation. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the 19.9 podcast. 
If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 19.9 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time, 